Well, good morning. We will start almost on time this morning, but that's only because we have to make it uh, to the end of chapter 11 uh, before the end of today. This will be our last Sunday school class of 2022, and it will be my last time teaching Deuteronomy, at least for now. The end of chapter 11 is a perfect place to break. I did not plan it out that way. The Lord has simply been kind. Uh, When we switch over to chapter 12, uh, that's when what is called the Deuteronomic Code begins, where Moses starts uh, explaining or giving uh, particular applications of the laws. But this morning, we'll finish out Deuteronomy 11, which is Moses' pastoral exhortation. Uh, You could even call it an inspirational sermon uh, to motivate Israel to live according to all he's about to explain. But before we get to... Finishing Deuteronomy 11 this morning, uh, I'd like to open us in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you again for this word that you've given to us, and we thank you that the kingdom is a kingdom of word. Not only of word, but as your apostle says, also of power. And we pray that that word would meet us this morning with power, that it would be powerful to transform our lives as subtly or as dramatically as you see fit. And we I pray, regardless, that your spirit would not leave us void this morning, but would make these words effective in their working. We pray that you would deepen our understanding and deepen our walk with you, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. For our introduction and review, we will go back to chapter 11, verse 13. Moses has been reminding Israel of the conditionality of the covenant. And so Deuteronomy 11, verse 13, picks up right with that. And if you will indeed obey my commandments that I command you today, to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, what will he do in that case? Verse 14, he will give the rain of your land in its season, the early rain and the later rain, that you may gather in your grain and your wine and your oil, and he will give grass in the fields for your livestock and you shall eat and be full. So, for obedience, the Lord gives material blessing through rain, crops, and ease of plenty. Verse 16 and 17 creates a contrast. Take care, lest your heart be deceived, or as we said last week, lest your heart be open. And you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will shut up the heavens, so that there will be no rain, and the land will yield no fruit, and you will perish quickly off the good land that the Lord is giving you. Material deterioration through drought, scarcity, and death is the result of disobedience. And again, that disobedience is framed as having a heart open to receiving the deceptive lies told by the prosperous Canaanites. Remember verse 16, lest your heart be deceived and you turn aside and serve other gods. Remember that the Canaanites were prosperous in their land, but only because it is a land that the Lord looks after and takes care of up in verse 12. It's a land the Lord your God cares for. The eyes of the Lord your God are always upon it from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. So when Israel enters Canaan, they will hear from the Canaanites the story about why they've been so successful. 
to relate that to this morning's message, we have got some very flashy methodology of producing these crops. You should pay attention to what we do. And Moses is warning the people, yes, the Canaanites are prosperous, but don't trust their reasoning as to why they're prosperous. Don't trust their reasons for their success. Rather, trust me. And what the Lord has said is, it's a land I look after. So how you relate to me is going to determine how the land will relate to you. And the land relates to the Canaanites in a prosperous way because I'm preparing it for you. And so what faith does is it does not trust its own understanding or someone else's understanding of why things are the way they are. Rather, faith trusts God's word. And what God has said is, I have made Canaan prosperous on your account. Therefore, obey me and things will go well for you. Now, the reason that's important to establish is because over and against listening to the voice of the Canaanites, verse 18, where we pick up technically for this morning, you shall therefore lay up these words of mine in your heart. So rather than having a heart open to the Canaanites and to other voices around them, they are to have their heart open only to the words that Moses is giving to them. You shall therefore lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul, and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall teach them to your children, talking of them when you are sitting in your house and when you are walking by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates that your days and the days of your children may be multiplied in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to give them as long as the heavens are above the earth. If you think to yourself, boy, that sounds familiar. It has a ring to it. Indeed, it does. That's what we had in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 6 to 9. So Moses opens the Shema, the famous passage of Deuteronomy, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And after that, he goes into exactly what we read right here in Deuteronomy nine, uh, Deuteronomy 11. So Deuteronomy 6, verse 6 to 9, I'm going to read it to you, not because it says anything new, and not simply as a scriptural reference, but because of the importance that Moses finds. He begins his pastoral exhortation with this. He ends his pastoral exhortation with this. Everything else is in between, but by using these, this concept as a bracket, he's emphasizing it. He's saying everything in between here is important, but everything in between here is what you ought to be teaching your children. So what is it uh, that Moses draws our attention to, or uh, what is the methodology, you might say, that he gives to us? Deuteronomy 6, verse 6. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. And you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. And you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. The first thing Moses has to say after you shall love the Lord. What is the first expression that that takes in Deuteronomy? paying attention to all of his words, devoted, careful attention to all of his words, saturating ourselves internally and externally with those words. That is the first expression of love for the Lord. In Deuteronomy 11, 
there is a lot that rides on saturating ourselves internally and externally with God's words. The reward hangs in the balance. All he's been explaining here throughout Deuteronomy has been obey these words so that things might go well for you and so that your children might live long in the land. Now there are some differences between Deuteronomy 6 and Deuteronomy 11. One of them is this, Deuteronomy 11 verse 18. You shall lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul. Soul was missing from Deuteronomy 9. That does not any different uh, in meaning. It is perhaps uh, a crescendo of intensity. Uh, so lay them up in your heart and in your soul as simply a way of saying all of your faculties, everything you have, your whole being, is to be bound up and controlled and operated by the words of the Lord. Uh, there is to be no other voice of persuasive influence. So not only is the heart supposed to be closed to listening sympathetically to competing ideas, it is to be open only to one source of authority, and that is Scripture. Now granted, that does not mean that we close up our ears to everything the culture is saying. Second Corinthians chapter 5 is an important passage on this front. When Moses says, do not have your heart open to the other words that you will hear swirling around you, it's not to say, don't listen to them at all. It is to say, don't listen sympathetically to them. Rather, what we are to do is we are to take every thought as a hostage to Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, and notice what Paul is dealing with here. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, which is exactly what Israel was going to be confronted with in Canaan. And we take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. So we do listen to the voices around us. It is important for us to know what the culture is saying, but only so that we can more effectively refute what they have to say. So we don't listen to them sympathetically in order to bow down to their gods. We listen to them only as a way to confront them and to refute the arguments that they give. That's basically what the branch of apologetics is in Christian thought, is knowing what the culture says and being able to interact with it and refute what people bring forward. Once again, though, back in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 11, verse 19, Israel is to teach their children so they learn. As, as parents, it's important to know what your kids are hearing, right? Um, it's important to know what your grandkids are hearing. And it's important to know what your coworkers are hearing, right? So all of that knowledge, all of the input is to be gained in order that this teaching might go on in verse 19. You shall teach your children of the ways of the Lord that are in conflict to the ways they're going to hear, but also simply the way they are to be positively lived out. So we saturate ourselves, especially with Scripture, so that we might teach them to the upcoming generations. And again, listen to how saturated these people are to be and how often they are to verbalize them. Talking of them when you are sitting in your house and when you are walking by the way and when you lie down, and when you rise, I don't know of anything that happens outside that. 
in human experience. Always, 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 always be talking about the words of God. Never let them depart from your lips. Verse 20, You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. That is to be, they are to be not publicly displayed in the way we often think of public display um, in, in our context. What that is to say is everywhere you look, you should be seeing the words of God. You should view everything through the lens of Scripture. Uh, so they are to be internal, they are to be external. Why? Verse 21. That your days and the days of your children may be multiplied in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to give them. If we are saturated with Scripture to the point of being able to teach the upcoming generation out of the storehouses of our knowledge and experience, a couple of things happen. One of them is they won't feel so rote and they won't feel forced. Many of you uh, certainly come from traditions where what happened, what was taught and what was done were clearly not aligned well. And what the Lord is saying here is, what Moses is saying is, don't do that. You have yourself transformed by it before you teach the others. But not only that, each generation faces the same conditionality that this generation faced. Every generation has a moment of decision, you might say, where they're, like Joshua, going to say, choose this day whom you're going to serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Now, that is a, a great passage to think about in this context, and the reason for that is this. If one generation fails to communicate the expectations and the obligations and the opportunities that the Lord provides, the next generation has no opportunity to walk in them. They'll fail by the customs that they have been raised in. If the words are not communicated well, what chance does the next generation have? And so Moses here is very keen to emphasize, not only shall you live this way, you shall make sure the next generation lives this way or has at least the opportunity to know why you live this way. So communicating that on has no less at stake than the amount of time and the quality of time that they will have in the land of Canaan. So there again is that conditionality of the covenant peeking through. I'll pause right there before we move on. Thoughts or questions through verse 21? Okay, verse 22 to 25. Here again, the conditionality is reiterated. We won't spend a lot of time on this, but here it is. For if you will be careful to do all this commandment that I command you to do, loving the Lord your God, walking in his ways and holding fast to him, then the Lord will drive out all these nations before you. And you will dispossess these nations greater and mightier than you. Every place on which the sole of your foot treads shall be yours. Your territory shall be from the wilderness to the Lebanon and from the river, the river Euphrates, to the western sea. 
No one shall be able to stand against you. The Lord your God will lay the fear of you and the dread of you on all the land that you shall tread as he promised you. Back to verse 22. If you will be careful to do all this commandment, uh, no doubt encompasses everything that Moses has been giving so far up to chapter 11, but also what he's going to explain going forward in chapter 12. So it's just a way of summarizing the whole law. If you do that, then, verse 23, the Lord will drive out these nations before you. Based on God's response to her obedience, Israel will be empowered to do what the Lord has commanded of her. The rest of verse 23, and you will dispossess nations greater and mightier than you. You may perhaps remember back in verse 8 that the Lord said, If you will obey my voice, you will be strengthened to go in and possess the land. Let's go up to verse 8. You shall therefore keep the whole commandment that I command you today, that you may be strong internally, um, have, have the equipping for the mission, and go in and take possession of the land that you are going over to possess. But now Moses adds another dimension to that. Not only will you be strengthened internally, the Lord himself is going to do something on your behalf as well. God's action and Israel's action here are the same thing. It doesn't come out in the ESV. I'll say it again, verse 23. Then the Lord will drive out these nations before you. We could read it literally. Then the Lord will dispossess these nations before you. And you will dispossess these nations greater and mightier than you. The, the verb that the Lord does is the same verb that the people do. The Lord will dispossess, you will dispossess. They're the same verb, the same verbal root, which means what Israel does and what the Lord does are not two different works it is the same work. It is a way of saying that Israel and God share a common goal and they are both working toward it in the same way. The Lord will dispossess the nations. Israel will dispossess the nations. And Moses outlines then in verse 24 the territory of which those greater and mightier nations live which is, your territory shall be from the wilderness in the south to the Lebanon in the north and from the river, the river Euphrates, and technically the northeast, but is supposed to stand for the east, to the western sea, which is the west. Now the syntax here in verse 23 and 24 is very important. It is a way of saying all of this territory will be yours and no one else's. You will not share it. There is no place where anyone will stand against you and be an enclave of Canaanite population. All of them will be entirely gone. That is drawn out in verse 25. No one shall be able to stand against you. And the reason for that is the Lord is going to wage psychological warfare on the inhabitants of Canaan. The Lord your God will lay the fear of you and the dread of you on the land that you shall tread as he promised you. Now, how does the Lord 
the Lord wage psychological warfare on a people? I don't know entirely. But I know how it doesn't work. And that is it's not mechanical. The Lord is a person. In fact, Yahweh is a person. The Lord, the, the problem with translating Yahweh the Lord every time is that it turns a concrete person, and I don't mean physical person, I just mean a real living being person into a title. He's not a title. The Lord isn't an abstraction. The name, the name Yahweh occurs 509 times in Deuteronomy. The Lord wants us to know his name. He wants us to know him as a name and by name. He is a person who responds to Israel either as an offended king or as an endeared patron. And he he actually responds to Israel that way. He will bless them or curse them. It's not a mechanical operation, right? It's not you put the quarter in, you turn the dial, and you get gumballs out. right? There's... It's it's more complex than that. He is a person, and he not only relates to Israel personally, he relates to all of the nations personally, especially those of Canaan. And he relates to them particularly as a personal enemy. So if we go forward to Joshua chapter 2, we can see how this played out in the mouth of Rahab, Joshua chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. Joshua sent ahead two spies, and verse 18, before the men, who are those two spies, lay down in Rahab's uh, roof where she was hiding them, she came up to them on the roof and she said to them, I know that Yahweh has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how Yahweh dried up the river of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For Yahweh your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now Rahab wasn't the only one who heard the report, right? In fact, her report is that we've not only heard the report of you, but all the inhabitants melt away on account of it. Why doesn't Rahab... Well, how did Peter know that Jesus was the Christ? My father's revealed that to you. Rahab's perception was made possible because a person made it possible for her. There is a person who revealed to Peter that Jesus was the Christ. He saw all the evidence that everyone else sees, more or less, right? He saw it. But he perceived something different. And it's not because Peter was wiser than everyone else. It's because a person made something known to him. Rahab recognized something that no one else seemed to recognize. If you can't beat them, join them. 
What made that perception possible? There is a person who made it known to her. There's also a person who made something known to all the other inhabitants as well. But he didn't make the same thing known. God is a person who chooses who he is going to convict and who he is going to leave. And he does personally give enough information for all to fear in this case, though not all respond to that fear in the same way. So what Moses is doing here in Deuteronomy 11 is he's saying this. God is a person who works in you. If you obey his voice, he will strengthen you to go in and possess the land. He is a person who works through you. He will dispossess the nations. You will dispossess the nations. And he is a person who works before you. He will send the fear and the dread of you on all of the inhabitants before you as you go in. I don't know about you, but the first vehicle I ever owned, personally, was a 1989 Dodge Grand Caravan. (laughs) What sophomore high schooler could want more than that? (laughs) But the funny thing is how I came to possess that beautiful 1989 Dodge Grand Caravan. My dad's best friend from high school was liquidating his farm. And he happened to have this grand caravan that he was selling with roughly, what was it, 189,000 miles and a, a rebuilt motor at the time. He was selling it for 450 bucks. And my dad turned to me and he said, you need a car. <laughs> he said, I want you to buy that. I said, I don't want to buy that. He said, I don't care. You're, you're buying it. <clears throat> so, so this is what happened. My dad worked in me, which is, you're going to buy it, and here's how you're going to do it. This, this is how you go through the negotiation process with someone, right? He also called his old friend Rick and said, hey, my boy's going to call you. He's going to talk to you about this. This is what you do. And then he had me call, and he, he had me buy the Grand Caravan, and later on he called Rick back and said, yeah, I was trying to teach him how to barter, and you weren't cooperating. You just gave it to him, but... No, we're not doing it that way. <laughs> but, but the point is this. My, my dad worked in me on how to buy and what to buy. He worked through me in the buying process as he put the words in my mouth, and he worked before me by talking to the guy I was going to buy it from. That's what the Lord is doing. It is one person dealing with his people. The Lord is one person dealing with those people. The way he deals with this group is not the same way he deals with that group, and that's because he chooses to do it differently. He's going to bless Israel, or he's going to curse Israel as a person based on how they relate to him. He's going to bless or curse the Canaanites as a person relating to people based on how they respond to him. And the way they've responded to him is just unadulterated wickedness. Or adulterated wickedness, I'm not sure how you'd want to say that. But uh, he, he relates to them as a person. That's what he's doing here in verse 25. By going before Israel, he is a person who is going to prepare the way before them. That is why God so often compares the covenant to a marriage. And that is why we relate to God not simply as a set of doctrinal beliefs. We relate to him through doctrinal beliefs, to be sure but not merely as a set of doctrinal beliefs. 1 Peter 1, 8 
tremendously important, and this is what makes a Christian a real Christian. This is what separates a Christian who has the substance from a Christian who merely possesses the form. 1 Peter 1, 8. And by the way, Peter has just gotten talking about this amazing inheritance, this amazing reward that the Lord has in store for people. And this is how he, he rings that home. 1 Peter 1, verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. And rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. That little bit at the beginning of verse 8, though you have not seen him, you love him. What ultimately makes one Christian a Christian and another Christian not really a Christian? They know God as a person, someone they love. And in fact, as Moses says in verse 22 of chapter 11, be careful to do all he's commanded, loving the Lord your God, walking in his ways, and holding fast to him, cleaving to him. The word here, he already used once in chapter 11. It's also the same word that is used of Adam clinging to Eve in the garden. A man will leave his father and cling to his wife. Same word. That's how we relate to the Lord. And that's the substance of a Christian. I'll pause right there before we move on. Thoughts or questions over any of that? Could you articulate the, the shell of your question again? But between David and us? So the question is, what is a Christian is someone who is possessed by the Spirit... David had the Spirit. What's the difference between David and us? Other than the fact that David received promises that we don't, um, he's, he is uh, the one through whom the Messiah comes, we're not. Uh, so there are certain uh, historical redemptive promises. The other significant thing is we live after the cross. David lived before it. And we look back to Christ. He looked forward to the shadowy prophecies of Christ. So if you want to get to the nutshell of the Spirit's interaction with the people of God in the Old and the New Testament, um, I'm going to cowardly take the way out and say that's a discussion for another time. Uh, but I, I, will, I will give this little bit. The problem is broader than that in Scripture. And that is there are places where you'll have Peter saying, for example, believe and you will receive the Holy Spirit. People believe, they're baptized, and the Spirit comes. Well, we systematically look at it the opposite way. We say the Spirit comes, enables belief, and there you have it. 
Well, scripture talks that way too. And so the, the real issue is what is the relationship between the spirit and belief? And that's a really complicated issue. Um, I'll just say that we have to take both things that scripture says. There is a sense in which David had the spirit. And David is a unique case, right? He was also a prophet. And so we, we have to give him um, an acknowledgement of that as well. Uh, but there is a form in which the Spirit comes, I think, in regeneration, and there is also a form that the Spirit comes after regeneration. I'm not advocating for a baptism of the Spirit or two, sec- two comings of the Spirit or anything like that. I am simply saying it's mysterious and it's hard to, arti- hard to articulate. But the Spirit is active before and after. All is of God. Yeah, and, and more broadly, too, to, to piggyback off that more broadly, it's possible to quench the Spirit, right? So, so there's the Spirit's a person, right? So there's an interaction between him and us, and what the nature of that looks like changes, right? We can be filled with the Spirit, which means walking in a way that is not only approved by the Spirit, but also one that brings us into greater communion with the Spirit. So if the Spirit comes and enables a certain amount of faith in order to be able to bow the knee to Christ, for example, that is something that is pleasing to God, and he grants more of himself, as it were, as you go on. And so there's, um, again, the Spirit is not a mechanical operation where you get the whole thing or nothing. Um, he's a person and relates to us on a personal level. So that's a great, great point to bring up, Dan. Anything else? Well, I'm not going to linger too long. Verse 26 to 28. So dealing with God as a person explains the issue of the blessing and the curse. I think a little bit the curse is certainly uh, punishment for disobedience. Uh, The curse can also be viewed as a consequence of not really loving one's spouse and having no opportunity for divorce at the same time. That would make life rather miserable. But that is what Moses has kind of been communicating. And he picks up here at verse 26. See, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. That is what he was doing. And that's why we started where we did with verses 13 to 15. Verses 13 to 15, lay out the blessing. Verses 16 and 17, lay out the curse most concisely. Verse 27, the blessing... If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I am commanding you today, which is comparable to knowing one's spouse or friend and living in a way that jives with that knowledge, living in a way that you know they are happy with. What pleases my wife may not be the same thing that pleases your wife. I have to know mine and you have to know yours. And I have to know my children, and you have to know your children. And that's all the Lord is saying, is there are ways that you can live that please me, and ways you can live that offend me. And that's not the same as it is for every other person or every other God. Verse 28 is facing the wrath of one who is dejected and becomes wrathful. Verse 28, and the curse 
if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside from the way that I am commanding you today to go after other gods that you have not known. Now it was unquestionable in the ancient Near East that Israel was going to worship someone or something, and that someone or something was going to be a god. Life, there, there was no such thing as theoretical atheism. It didn't exist in Israel's day as it does in ours. The commonality, though, is that the only reason Israel would seek to worship a deity other than Yahweh is because they're looking for some self-seeking advantage. That's no different than us, right? The only reason we would forsake the Lord is because we are looking for some self-seeking advantage. But it is always a case of committing spiritual adultery. Now, how many people ever say to themselves, look, the only reason I'm committing adultery is I'm thinking of them. It doesn't work that way. The only reason I would worship another god is, you know, to love my neighbor. It doesn't work, right? It is always a selfish and self-centered thing to do. And so here in verse 28, it is a turning from the way that I am commanding you today to go after other gods that you have not known. Turning away is always the pathway to idolatry. And between the blessing and the curse, Moses is prone to spend more time on the curse generally than the blessing. First, Israel is more prone to wander away from the path of obedience. And the second thing is that idolatry is always irrational. And notice that little tag he puts at the end of verse 28. To go after other gods you have not known. That doesn't mean Israel doesn't know the name of Molech or Baal or any other god around. What it is to say is that those gods have done nothing for Israel, and every time Israel has run into a foreign god and been tempted to worship a foreign god, it has created an impediment to their success. Every single time. Never once has idolatry worked out for the people of Israel. But they're still prone to it. And that's the insanity of sin, right? Never once has sin worked out the way we wanted it to. Still prone to the same ones over and over and over and over and over and over again. And Moses here is trying to show the irrationality of that pattern to the people of Israel. They're gods you haven't known, which is they've done nothing for you and they have not revealed themselves to you. You don't even know what they want, even if you could. All the information you have about it is hearsay and speculation. And all of that is opposed to the Lord, who not only does make himself known so that Israel can actually know Yahweh, but he's also done things on their behalf that would lure them into following after him. So again, the point is simply warning against forsaking the Lord after all he has done for them and offered to them. Don't go that way. That's all I have over those verses, thoughts, or questions before we move on. Okay. Verse 22. 
6. We just did. Verse 29. Moses is now assuming successful entry into the land. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it, you shall set the blessing on Mount Gerizim and the curse on Mount Ebal. Are they not beyond the Jordan, west of the road, toward the going down of the sun in the land of the Canaanites who live in the Areba, opposite Gilgal, beside the Oak of Morah? Sure are a lot of descripting factors there, aren't there? Verse 31, For you are to cross over the Jordan to go in to take possession of the land that the Lord your God has given you. And when you possess it and live in it, you shall be careful to do all the statutes and the rules that I am setting before you today. Now again, verse 29 assumes Israel's successful entry into the land. And except by divine revelation, Moses has absolutely no way of knowing that this generation is going to be successful. All Moses knows is that Israel is eventually going to enter the land and be successful. The reason he knows that comes back again at the end of verse 25. It is the land and it is the way he promised you. The last two words of verse 25. As he promised you. So they are going to enter. And then once they do enter, there is a command Verse 29, right in the middle of it, you shall set up the blessing on Mount Gerizim and the curse on Mount Ebal. The command effectively is either to declare or perhaps even enshrine the blessings of the covenant on one mountain and the curses of the mountain on the other. That at least requires some moderate success in driving out or subjugating the Canaanite population. The reason they are to do it comes in verse 31. For you are crossing over the Jordan to go in to take possession of it, of the land that the Lord your God is giving you. And when you possess and live in the land, you shall be careful to do all the statutes and the rules that I am setting before you today. The blessing and the curse were supposed to be publicly declared and accessible for all to see as both a motivation and as a warning. Joshua did do this as he was commanded to. And that ends up making Shechem. So so the way it works actually is uh, Mount Ebal is a, a northern mountain. Mount Gerizim is a southern mountain. And directly in between them lies Shechem. So they're shouting over the city of Shechem, basically, as they uh, yell these blessings and curses back and forth from one mountain to the other. In fact, if uh, just a little fun word, Shechem means shoulder blade. Uh, so you can imagine two shoulder blades poking out of someone's back and the spine is in the middle. Well, Shechem sits on the spine and the two mountains are the shoulder blade. Uh, small, relatively small geographical area also makes Shechem a, a great amphitheater Uh, of sorts for for doing this. But anyway, the point of all of this is that people would hear the words, know the words, know the blessing and the curse, have the motivation of the carrot and have the motivation of the stick 
And verse 32, be careful to do all the statutes and the rules that I am setting before you today. What this does is it makes Shechem a new Moab and a new Sinai. So there are three times the covenant is renewed among the people of Israel. First, it's given at Sinai. Then it's renewed in the plains of Moab, which is what Moses is doing. And then it's renewed again at Shechem once they're inside the land. Each of those renewals relates to a new generation of Israelites. But most importantly, what's going on at Shechem is Israel is doing in the land of Canaan what Moses is doing outside the land of Canaan. It's a, it doesn't show up in our translations, but in verse 26, it says, Moses says, See, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. Some of you might have a different translation. I am giving to you today a blessing and a curse. Uh, the, the actual Hebrew word there is the word forgive. That is the same thing that shows up in verse 29. You shall give the blessing on Mount Gerizim and the curse on Mount Ebal. Israel is repeating Moses' actions inside the land as a way of incorporating the new generation of Israelites into the exact same covenant that their forebears had. So Moses then, even though he dies before he enters into Canaan, he still lives on as a commanding voice among God's people. Verse 32, You shall be careful to do all the statutes and the rules that I am setting before you today. Moses' voice has always had a place among God's people, so much so that Jesus could say, um, well, in, in his parable of Abraham speaking, they won't believe if someone rises from the dead if they won't believe Moses. That's how significant Moses is even in Jesus' day. Now this not only leads into a new section in Deuteronomy where Moses actually explains all of those things, but once again, he is reiterating the conditionality of the land. It is not earned. It is not the reward for a work done. Rather, Israel's time in the land under the Sinaitic covenant was never the fulfillment of God's promises to the patriarchs. And so we can go to Galatians 3 here. Galatians 3, verses 16 to 18. Galatians three sixteen. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring, which, by the way, uh, keep a finger in Galatians 3. Let's do a real quick biblical study. Go back to Genesis 12, verses 6 and 7. So Genesis 12... Verses 6 and 7, which I can't get to. There we go. Abraham, 
Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. Why do you think Moses included those trivial details in Deuteronomy 11 about Shechem's location? He came to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring, I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord, to Yahweh, who had appeared to him. You might think that what Moses is saying in Deuteronomy 11 is, When you get to Mount Gerizim and Ebal, announce the fulfillment of the covenant. It is done. The land is yours. You're the offspring of Abram. You are in your place. This is what we've been waiting for. But let's go to Galatians 3. Verse 16 again. Now the promises were made to Abram and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring. Who is Christ? Israel's conditional time in the land, even if it were successful, is not the fulfillment of Genesis 12. Even though Shechem's history gives the reason as to why Israel does the covenant renewal in Shechem, it is not a declaration of the fulfillment of the covenant. It is the declaration of a provisional, temporary fulfillment. There is a surer, more permanent fulfillment coming, and that comes in Christ. Now back to Galatians 3, verse 17. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterwards, which is the Sinai law, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance came by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. So this is what's happening here. In Galatians 3, Paul is saying the inheritance we get from the Lord, from the person, when the person of the Lord gives us our inheritance, he doesn't give it to us as a fair exchange value for our work. He doesn't give it to us as a wage earned by what we do any more than Israel's time in the land is given to her as a reward for her work. Israel possesses the land by faith, and that faith has faithfulness attending it. Faithfulness is the litmus test of the quality of faith. So when he says, if you obey my voice... What they're gauging is not how well they are working for the Lord. What they are gauging is, is their faith in the Lord genuine faith? Will they have the land because they trust the Lord to give it to them? Or will they lose the land because they don't trust the Lord and follow after him? As Moses says in Deuteronomy eleven twenty six, or wherever it was, uh, 23 maybe, Uh, to love the Lord and walk in his ways and to cling to him. So the blessing is not given as payment for works of righteousness, but to those who fulfill the conditions of faith. And And in Deuteronomy, it's the exact same case. They fulfill the conditions of faith, which is obedience, 
It is, the land is not something they get as a reward. One more little piece we'll add to that. Shechem shows up also in Genesis 33. We can leave Galatians behind unless you have a question and want to linger there. But other than that, Genesis 33, verses 18 to 20. Shechem is where Jacob has his homecoming after his time with Laban. So Jacob has been out of the land in his own wilderness for quite some time. And he comes home. What is the first place he goes to? Genesis thirty-three eighteen. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Padan Aram. And he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he pitched his tent. There he erected an altar and called it El Holy Israel. One more passage, verse, uh, chapter 35, verses 1 to 4. So not only is there a theme of homecoming in Israel's history related to Shechem, there is also a theme of covenant fidelity. Covenant renewal, you might even say. Uh, a resolve to worship only Yahweh as Israel's God. So Genesis 35, verses 1 to 4. Jacob is still at Shechem. God said to Jacob, Arise, go to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had, and the rings that were in their ears, uh, something related to idolatry there. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree, which also could be translated oak, that was near Shechem. So at Shechem, not only is it the place that Jacob comes home, it's also the place where he puts away all the foreign gods among him. And what happens in Joshua when he goes through the same ceremony is he tells Israel the exact same thing. Put away the foreign gods that are still among you, even after all of this time you've been with the Lord. Follow Jacob's example and uh, commit yourselves to faithfully following the Lord. And that's where Moses ends his great inspirational sermon of Deuteronomy. Thoughts or questions over anything we've covered so far? Well, then not a mouse is stirring. Thank you for joining us uh, through Deuteronomy. We'll be dismissed today. And next week when we pick up in the new year, I believe Jim Power will be back with you in uh, continuing on in the book of John. Thanks for joining. Have a Merry Christmas.